Welcome to Sermons from St. David's, a ministry of St. David's Episcopal Church in Southfield, Michigan. It's a chance for us to share a good word of challenge, inspiration, and hope as we walk the journey of faith together. You're welcome to join us on Sundays at 8 a.m. and 10 a.m. for live in-person worship. You can also join our 10 a.m. Eucharist via Zoom. Just go to our website for the meeting ID and password at stdavidssf.org. Well, good morning, everybody. I'd like to begin by asking you to pull out your uh, bulletin uh, covers, if you will. Steve, you can please put that image on your TV screens. I want us to direct our attention to Moses, that Hebrew baby who was raised up in Pharaoh's court. Uh, in the foreground of that image you have in front of you, you can see the sheep that were under his charge as Moses had taken refuge in the deserts on the run from murdering an Egyptian. And thus he was now hanging out in the bleak and barren desert in the boondocks, hiding out, distancing himself from trouble. And while Moses, you remember, Moses was raised up in Pharaoh's household, and thus he was well-educated, he was well-connected, and not unwise to the ways of the world. Moses was intentionally sidelining himself at this point in his life with a comfortable life, having married the local priest's daughter, Zipporah, and now living that pastoral life, caring for his family by caring for his father-in-law, Jethro's sheep. And it was while Moses was tending those sheep that a bush spontaneously combusted a burning bush. And when Moses went closer, an angel came out of that bush. Then the voice of the Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob met Moses with instructions that we can see in that icon. Take off your sandals, for you are on holy ground. You have a holy mission ahead of you. And of course, what is that holy mission? Well, the enslaved and abused Israelites were under Pharaoh's heel in Egypt. And God had heard the cries. God had come to know their sufferings. God had heard the cries and the sufferings of those in peril. And God wanted them delivered. Would Moses partner with God to do so? Who am I to do that, says Moses? How could this happen? For I am not equipped to do this. But God was relentless. Go down, Moses. Did we sing it enough for you today? Go down, Moses. And we did that to underline, I'm hoping, the three things that we want to take away from our sermon this morning. And the first has to do with compassion, the compassion of God. The second has to do with the partnership that God invites you and I to be in as we address the problems of the world. And the third, of course, is that victory that comes, and that word we use is liberation, compassion, partnership, liberation. Earlier this week, a 10-month-old baby crossed over the border from Ukraine to Poland and was just beginning to form his first words. His parents were fleeing their home, not able to bring what they could carry other than what was in their arms or on their backs. 10-month-old was one of 1.5 million child refugees, as you all know, 3 million refugees now, half of them children. And the rates of, uh, of travel now is 55 children per minute. So it's one child per second. Come here, I think he's ready, shouted the mother to the father as they began to get ready for these babies' first words. And what do you suppose those words were? Boom, boom, boom. I have observed the misery of my people who are in Egypt, says the Lord. I've heard their cry. I know their sufferings. And this, my friends, served as the predicate 
to Moses' calling, and I think it serves as a predicate to much of our calling as we respond to this and other sufferings in our lives. God doesn't turn eyes from suffering children. God doesn't block ears from the cries of the oppressed. God knows what we're going through, and God has compassion for it all. I know it's hard to imagine we look at so much violence and so much suffering in our world, but that this is the God whom we serve is a God who listens and has compassion. It is compassion, forgiveness, and mercy that followers of Jesus are asked to emulate. We need it for our personal lives. We need it societally. This is one of the reasons I love church and that I'm, I'm an ordained minister is because I believe in the power of community. I believe in the power of us to lift up the values that we need to be the people we need to be to change our world from selfish insularity that doesn't care about others to a people who lives into what we really are, which is a generous, life-giving, and loving person. And then gather together, we are that people. Now, I think we need to take that in our personal lives. I think we need to take that in society. Why? Uh, take the case of John Henry Ramirez. You may have read about him in the news. He's on death row. He's in Texas. And he recently made news because he asked his pastor to lay hands on him at the moment he got that shot that would take his life. And apparently he can't do that in Texas. It's against the rules. So the state of Texas has said, we're going to put a stay on your execution. We're going to send it to the Supreme Court. Now, John Henry Ramirez is no choir boy. He's guilty of a heinous, heinous murder. He killed somebody and netted $1.25. But as Christians, we believe that even Mr. Ramirez can be truly remorseful, can love others, and can change his life. As Christians, we don't just have mercy on victims, friends. We have mercy on perpetrators. Why? Because God has mercy on us. We remember that Jesus is the one who told us to love not just our friends, the people who are easy to love, but our enemies, the people who are really hard to love. That's how the world changes, Dr. King put it very coherently when he said the only way to change an enemy into your friend is to love them. It's not to beat them up. It's not to shoot them. It's to love them. And to have faith that God can change us people for good. However, the courts, of course, thus far have determined the opposite, that Mr. Ramirez's heinous crime reveals the core of his true nature, which is incapable of personal transformation and therefore is irredeemable. They demonize him which is why perhaps they feel justified in denying his inalienable human right to life and to live and in depriving him of a beloved pastor to lay hands on him when he dies. Friends, in a state like Texas, where not only are there a lot of churches, but probably the biggest churches in the country, we would hope that the leaven of compassion and mercy would have an effect on a vengeful, judgmental, merciless judicial system. And I hope that churches here in our state that stand for the compassion of Jesus, the mercy, the forgiveness, the love, the acceptance of Jesus can have an effect on an otherwise harsh and unforgiving landscape. As we consider the compassion of God and God's mercy for the suffering, we ask ourselves about our own feelings of compassion. We ask ourselves, who in our circle of influence, the people we run across, the situations we find ourselves in, how are we owning up to our own convictions of compassion? We ask ourselves what actions the Holy Spirit is inviting us to take this week that are not based in revenge, in anger, in condemnation, but in our convictions of compassion. Friends, who do we need to be more forgiving toward? Who needs our mercy? 
Who needs our compassion? Point number one, compassion. Many years ago, I knew a man whose love for Jesus was matched only by his love for dipping squares of bread into melted cheese. That's right. He was a Christian fundamentalist. And I did get that joke from the Reinster brothers. And at the heart of it is this inquiry into what kind of God you and I meet when we come to church on Sunday. I met a guy recently, he called me a theist. And I said, what do you mean by a theist? He said, well, you know, I'm referring to somebody who believes in a God who has everything all worked out and who believes that no matter what happens on earth, it's all God's will. He said, you're a theist. I said, you know what? I, I, I know theists, but I'm not a theist. And we started a conversation. After all, there are many, many theologies out there. There's many as there are people. And I expect all of us here have some sort of conviction or nuance or belief that is shared by others. And I told him that the God I believe in, that I read about in the Bible, that I have come to know through church and the sacraments, is a God who has asked me to be a partner. In other words, I believe in a God who knows all the possibilities that could arise in the future. But because of God's unfathomable love for us, has made you and I God's partners, God's friends. As John 15 talks about, you're no longer my servants, you're my friends. And so has given us agency over determining the future as well. Now what that means is, uh, where's Mike? That air drummer over here. Suppose he walks down the steps here and he falls on the carpet. Now I have free will to go and help him or not. Of course, God's hoping that I do, and so is Mike. But the guy's not going to make me do it. So is it God's will that Mike sits there on the ground without any aid? Of course not. But do I have a hand in it? Yes, I do. And Mike, be assured, I will rush over and help you out and maybe ask a few other people to help too. My point is here that God relied upon Moses to say yes. God did not free Israel from the Egyptians without Moses. Was, God, was Moses a perfect vessel of God's grace? Of course not. He was a murderer. Did Moses get the job done? Absolutely. No matter what you and I have done, we can be God's partner. We can help in the work that God is doing in the world. And that makes us wonder, what is God's job for us? In what ways are we being asked to be God's partner? What's the good work around us that won't be done unless you and I do it? If the God we serve is one who asks us to step up, how are we doing so? As a parish, certainly this is so true in all of the work I have seen us do through the years. It's helping the hungry in our neighborhood get fed. It's to pray with hundreds of people who come through our driveway, through drive through ashes, through drive through crosses and prayers on Good Friday. And God ain't going to do any of that stuff without our cooperation, folks, without our partnership. Maybe this image of God as a partner is new to you. And so I invite you to reflect upon that. Maybe you've never thought about the things that are happening around us as opportunities for us to do God's work. If that's the case, what do you suppose God is asking you to partner with and partner in this week? Point number one, compassion. Point number two, partnership. Point number three, liberation. And I'm going to tell you a story about April 8th, 1906. The Reverend Charles Wing preached a sermon. Wing, W-I-N-G. He preached a sermon that was so popular, it was published in the New York Tribune, Jake. None of mine have been published in the New York Tribune. 
mainly because yeah. it's gone bankrupt. Yeah, but back then they did that. But in that sermon, uh, sermon, Reverend Wing told the story of a train full of children's toys and treats that was stranded after its locomotive died, not only to be rescued by a self-deprecating, insecure little blue engine, whose litany you all know. Judy smiling at me. She reads her children's books all the time. I think I can. I think I can. I think I can. The story was told and retold until it was packaged years later by a publishing company owned in part by a man named Arthur uh, Arnold Monk, who went by the pen name Waddy Piper. And he had his secretary do the pictures and then sold it as a little engine that could. It's no surprise you remember it. It was recently voted, yet again, as one of the top teacher's favorite 100 books for the National Education Association. As you may remember, the story stars that little blue train who started off with as much confidence as Moses, doubting but not ruling out the possibility that that mountain could be climbed. Just like Moses, who believed but also didn't, as he questioned his talents and his credentials. Who am I, O oh Lord? to go to Pharaoh and to bring the Israelites out of Egypt. One of the reasons I love that encounter in this particular passage is because it talks to me in terms of my own personal liberation. When we talk about God's work of liberation, in this case, bringing the Israelites from the Egyptians, we discover that the very first person God liberated was Moses. And that without his liberation, Israel doesn't get liberated. And without your liberation from yourself and my liberation from myself, there's no liberation for those depending on us. And with that, we ask ourselves, what's holding us back? What's keeping us from forgiving ourselves? What's keeping us from looking at ourselves soberly in the mirror for all that we have, the good as well as the bad, and not the bad as well as the good? What's keeping us from believing the call of God in our lives to be and to do that which the Almighty has placed in our hearts? The gospel, folks, is a liberating, liberating message. It's a joyful and encouraging message that you can do more than you think you can because you've got God inside you, that you've been called to do something really important. Whether or not we ever know it's important is another thing. But friends, more people are touched by you. You make more people's day and you'll never know. You say the right thing to people and then they go out the door like they've left the subway. God is working through you. God is speaking hope and life and courage to other people. And as the saying goes, God doesn't call the equipped. God equips the call. So the key is to do what God says. And God will give you words like God gave Moses. And they may not be pretty words like we would think but they're needful words like God thinks. So that like Moses, we're to have faith in that call, friends, and liberate ourselves from our perceived shortcomings, from our perceived faults, from our perceived foibles, and trust that God will work through us. What are you good at? What do, you, what do the people around you say you're good at? Don't we suppose that our strong points are gifts from God? And that we become our best selves, not by trying to build on our weaknesses, but by improving our strengths. Moses had the education and the social stamina to go before Pharaoh and lead a fledgling people, which God capitalized on. 
and he partnered with to do God's work of liberation. Friends, our work is not one of fear and doubt, but of faith and confidence. Sure, in God, but also in ourselves. If God can't steer a parked car, what's keeping us from putting it in gear? Compassion, partnership, liberation. Friends, we serve a God of compassion and we strive to emulate. We serve God as a partner, praying for strength as we try to do what we're told. And we serve a God of liberation whose work begins with us and whose effects know no bounds. Let us go, my brothers and sisters. Let us, let us go and look at Moses and look at that partnership with a God of compassion whose boundless love for the suffering and the shackled led to the freedom and liberation that we all, are, that we all seek for ourselves and for our world. And may the same power that flowed through Moses be channeled and embodied in you and in Thanks so much for listening. And may the God of peace who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus Christ, the great shepherd of the sheep by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in you that which is pleasing in his sight. Through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen.